Hi, I'm Yusuf Zin. My latest TVO Today podcast is on how a Canadian ends up in a Chinese prison, and if he's even alive. Listen and subscribe to Extradition. Available now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome everyone to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. This week on the pod, younger children are now eligible for a COVID-19 vaccine shot. Some healthcare workers in Hamilton are fired for refusing to be vaccinated. There'll be a public inquiry into the hot mess that is Ottawa's $2 billion Confederation light rail transit line. The Auditor General has released a report on how well the government is following its own environmental policies. Spoiler alert, not too well. And the Ontario Liberals have an idea on how to encourage you to buy winter tires for your car or truck. It's Tuesday, November 23rd, 2021, so let's get to it. Well, we already know that almost 90% of eligible Canadians are vaccinated, which is among the highest percentage of any nation in the world. But now there's the probability that even more among us will take the jab. JMM, tell us about why the government is encouraging 5 to 11-year-olds to get vaccinated now. Uh, it's the news that I've been waiting for since this all started. Uh, my own kid is finally eligible to get a vaccine for COVID. Uh, and so is any other child born on or before December 31st, 2016. Uh, their parents can register them for shots on the provincial vaccination portal uh, as of 8 a.m. Uh, this morning, Tuesday morning. Uh, unlike the experience we all had earlier this year of uh, waiting for our turn in the queue as vaccine supplies came in uh, you know, week by week, uh, Ontario is going to have enough doses for every eligible child, uh, all 1 million or so, uh, by the end of this week. And uh, the government is really hoping that uh, parents do sign up in large numbers, uh, since about one third of new COVID-19 cases these days are coming from school-aged children, uh, and the vaccines will both help protect kids and hopefully control the spread of the virus. Okay, you mentioned any child born in 2016, even if they aren't five years old right now, they'll be eligible for this vaccine. Just because I want to make trouble here. What happens to kids who are born, let's say, January 1st, 2017? Are they eligible? <laughs> that's uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, Solicitor General Sylvia Jones was asked about what uh, what is the prospect for uh, 2017 babies uh, on uh, Monday morning. And she initially said that uh, kids who are born in, for example, August of 2017 will be eligible uh, as of January 1st. Uh, and then a few hours later, the government had to retract that statement. Uh, you know, they walked it back and said, uh, actually, they'll be following the data on vaccines as it evolves over the coming uh, weeks and months. Um, not a great way to start the government's week, a bit of a communication snafu there. I know it upset a lot of parents. Uh, you know, I watched this all unfold on social media. Um, so as it stands now, you know, if your kid is uh, born on January 1st, and, and they turn five on January 1st of 2022, I suspect they'll be able to get their uh, uh, their Pfizer shot. If they're born on February 1st or March 1st, we just don't know at the moment. And, um, I, you know, I have my suspicions, but I kind of don't want to disappoint any more parents than uh, I have to right now. <laughs> <laughs> Including yourself. Now, your, your kid's under the wire, though, right? She's right. okay? My, my daughter just turned six, so she's in the clear, and uh, she doesn't know it yet, but she's going to be meeting a needle as soon as I can arrange it. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. Okay. Now, presumably, and again, I think an obvious question here, there will be enough doses coming in in order to satisfy this new cohort, I presume. 
Yes. So uh, at least for the kids who are immediately eligible, we're going to be well stocked by the end of the week, at least for first doses. Uh, The government is uh, spacing out second doses more than they had with the the, uh, more than the manufacturer uh, requires. Uh, The the government will be spacing out first and second doses by eight weeks. So that will also have the benefit of giving them time to get more supply in for those second doses. Um, But uh, yeah, there's going to be lots of supply, lots of different ways to get uh, the uh, the needles in arms. Uh, but just in case, uh, Vaccine Hunters Canada, you remember them from uh, earlier this year, the social media team of volunteers. Uh, they helped many people find their doses uh, earlier this year. Uh, they are getting back in the saddle uh, for one more big push. Uh, so between schools, hospitals, family practitioners, and uh, now Vaccine Hunters Canada, uh, folks will have a number of options for getting their younger kids vaccinated in coming days. Not only do I remember them, but I noticed that Toronto Life magazine, who when they do their sort of top 50 most influential people in the capital city every year, it's almost always the premier or the mayor or some, you know, billionaire or something like that. This year, and the edition I think just came out this weekend, Vaccine Hunters Canada was number one. So they have done good and important work over the last 19 months, so they're getting some deserved recognition. Oh, and you might tell your daughter as well, not that she knows who I am, she will not be the only one getting the needle in the next little while because um, I'm going for my booster shot right after we finish recording this. Hey, I am apparently, as a, as a double AstraZeneca guy, and um, my last shot having taken place six months ago, I'm now eligible for a booster shot. So I'm going to go get it right after this. Uh, you are indeed eligible. Uh, at the moment, it's uh, people who have had two shots of AstraZeneca people who are over 70, uh, Indigenous people and healthcare workers. Uh, Anybody who's uh, six months out from their second dose is eligible. Uh, I I know that the government is planning to expand that eligibility further. Uh, I think if if you just go by the six-month mark, I would be eligible by uh, earlier mid-December, but uh, they haven't uh, opened up my age cohort yet. (laughs) Yeah, you're not over 70. Even I'm not over 70 yet, even though I acted most of the time. But anyway, that's another story. (laughs) Let's uh, let's stay on this topic and talk about the post-secondary world because there have been college and university students who, I think it's fair to say, have taken up the vaccine challenge extremely well. About 99% of post-secondary students are vaccinated, which, of course, they have to be if they want to attend classes on campus. But 99% is not 100%, and there are some students who just for whatever reason won't do it. And this did become an issue the other day at Western University in London. That's right. Uh, A young male student insisted on going to class uh, despite not having been vaccinated and despite not having a uh, medical exemption. Um, I can say I only made perfect and sterling life choices when I was a young man in university. (laughs) Um, He said with no tongue in cheek at all. Yes, right. (laughs) Uh, I I mostly didn't make my mistakes other people's problems, though. (laughs) Um, Apparently, this uh, student had done this several times. And uh, finally, the university called in security and had him forcibly removed. You know, this uh, video clip went uh, a bit viral on social media. This is obviously a, a last-ditch solution for any post-secondary institution. Um, but the student in question here said he didn't need to be vaccinated because even if he got COVID, it was highly unlikely that it was going to kill him, and so he preferred to take his chances. Uh, of course, left unstated here is the fact that if he did get COVID, he isn't just taking his chances. He he might pass it on to other people uh, who aren't 22. Uh, you know, he could 
spread it to you know grandparents or people in their 60s or older, uh, people who have much more serious consequences from getting COVID, uh, who also can be bopping around university campuses. Uh, and we know that 98% of uh, COVID deaths have taken place among uh, those who are over 60 in Ontario. So again, not the greatest life choices uh, when we're that age. Uh, perhaps he had not considered all that yet. <laughs> Indeed. Let's follow up with another COVID story, this one out of Hamilton. We've been telling you for several weeks now that the head of Hamilton Health Sciences, which is the corporation that runs most of the hospitals in Hamilton, uh, they've insisted that all healthcare workers be vaccinated or else those workers, the unvaccinated, will be fired. And about 98% of workers are vaccinated. But for those that refused, well... Fill us in, JMM. Time's up for them, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Hamilton Health Sciences has fired six staff members and disciplined 52 others, uh, even though the deadline of November 30th actually hasn't technically arrived yet. Uh, the reason the hospital system did this is because those who haven't been vaccinated are supposed to disclose their vaccination status and be tested twice a week, uh, but they weren't doing even that. At Joseph Brandt Hospital in uh, nearby Burlington, they're taking a similar approach. 13 staff were fired and 38 have been put on unpaid leave again for what is effectively uh, insubordination. We should say the head of Hamilton Health Sciences is a, guy, is a guy named Rob McIsaac, who's a former politician. So the guy understands, I guess, a little something about uh, leadership, making a decision and sticking to it. And he has, and he's getting a, you know, a lot of very positive attention in the Hamilton press uh, for taking that position. There are healthcare facilities in this province which have not taken this step, uh, presumably because replacing those healthcare workers would be harder. But we should remind everybody, this is, John Michael, the hospital's decision to make, right? Uh, that's correct. The, the government did not uh, make this decision for them. The government has opted not to make it mandatory for healthcare workers uh, to get the vaccine, uh, which uh, effectively, you know, tosses the the political problem, the management problem, uh, back to hospital CEOs. Um, you know, it's different in long term care, where uh, all workers have until December thirteenth to be fully vaccinated and and prove their fully vaccinated status to their employer, uh, or else they will be fired. Uh, but uh, you know, that is. A deadline that has already been extended. Uh, workers were not rushing to get vaccinated. So, you know, we could still see a showdown uh, between the government and the relatively small percentage of long-term care workers who are still refusing to get vaccinated. And <laughs> looking at the calendar, uh, you're, you're potentially looking at a, a another showdown with long-term care uh, at the, the center of a, a political uh, a scandal, whatever you want to call it, uh, right before Christmas. Mm-hmm. Uh, tick tock, tick tock, as they say. Well, let's check in with one more group of workers, and that is apparently there are some employees of the TTC, the Toronto Transit Commission. This is the organization that runs the subways, the streetcars, the buses, wheel trans. They are refusing to take the needle, some of them. And the union representing TTC workers took the case to court and asked the judge to put the TTC's plan on hold. But the judge sided with the commission instead. What's that all about? Right. So this is basically means that the, the TTC management uh, now has the authority to suspend or fire uh, workers who won't get vaccinated. Uh, but this isn't the, the end of the line for this dispute. Uh, apparently, the Transit Workers Union, uh, they, they are entitled under Ontario labor law to grieve this decision. Uh, so they uh, have 
applied to bring this to arbitration. They, they were asking the judge to uh, pause everything until an arbitrator could rule. The judge declined to. Uh, this will go before an arbitrator who uh, will decide uh, the, the, the final issue, whether this is a, a reasonable thing for management uh, to do. Uh, and the union will get its chance there to uh, you know, stand up for its members, its workers who don't want to be vaccinated. So let's go up to, as they say, 30,000 feet now and take a look at the many different kinds of workers that we've been talking about here, a small percentage of whom, and we, you know, we remind everybody, it's a small percentage of people who don't want to get vaccinated. Why do you suppose the province of Ontario doesn't simply say, if you're paid from the public purse, if you have significant interactions with the public, you must be vaccinated or else you're fired? Why are they not taking that step? You know, it's an interesting question because, you know, the government is taking a different approach depending on who you are. Uh, Long-term care workers must get vaccinated, right? This is, you know, the sector where we've seen uh, the highest death count relative to its, its population. These are people who uh, deal with the frail elderly in congregate care. So, you know, the government has said, yes, you have to get vaccinated there. Um, I will say it took the government a while to get to that position, but they did get there. Um, hospital workers, though, people who also frequently deal with uh, people who have, you know, um, weakened immune systems or other conditions that might make them particularly vulnerable to COVID, and yet the government is not requiring them uh, to be vaccinated. Uh, transit workers, uh, yes, but only because uh, the uh, Transit Commission says so, uh, not a, a provincial mandate. Uh, you know, and, and we could look at school boards, where uh, school boards have adopted their own policies. And um, this, I think, sort of helps illustrate some of the problems, right? Uh, we, we just learned this week the Toronto District School Board, uh, nearly 300 staff had been given temporary exemptions from the board's vaccine policy because they need to fill roles that aren't uh, easy to replace, things like special needs, education positions. Uh, and, and, you know, I think this shows you or it, it helps illustrate what the government is concerned about, uh, you know, being stuck with uh, a really critical staff shortage that uh, the government sort of induces on itself uh, with these vaccine policies. Uh, I think there's a reasonable argument about whether uh, the government's fears about losing critical workers are maybe being exaggerated because Premier Ford was quite public about the fact that he he didn't really want to impose vaccine requirements. He, he took a long time to get to uh, requiring vaccine certificates, that kind of thing. Uh, doesn't really love these coercive measures, but Whatever I think about the the um, actual severity of the problem, uh, this is, I think, the government's stated reason for it. They're they're worried about causing these uh, workforce shortages in a province that, frankly, already has a lot of uh, labor shortages. Three hundred thousand unspoken for jobs in the province of Ontario right now. Quite astonishing. All right, let's turn our focus to the nation's capital, where the Confederation Line LRT has not only been a transportation fiasco, but it's now also become a significant political story as well. JMM, why has the Ontario government called a public inquiry into what's happening there? So we'll give you some background uh, for those of you listening who uh, live outside of Ottawa. Um, the LRT that uh, is in place now is a $2.1 billion or so uh, light rail line. Uh, it's the biggest infrastructure project in Ottawa's history, uh, but it has had all sorts of mechanical problems. Uh, there have been, uh, I believe, two derailments over the past few months. Uh, nobody injured, thankfully, uh, but they had to shut the, the whole train down for several weeks. It caused all sorts of uh, transit chaos in, uh, in the nation's capital and one of Ontario's biggest cities. 
uh, it has become a huge political story because uh, the derailments recently were only sort of the most recent and most severe problems. Uh, the train has also, you know, had trouble running in cold weather. And as somebody who was born in Ottawa, I will tell you that Ottawa gets cold <laughs> pretty reliably. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They've got a whole canal that they like to skate on. It's a big deal. <laughs> um and so it's it's causing uh, huge political problems for uh, the mayor of Ottawa, Jim Watson, uh, who has been uh, quite popular. Uh, he was uh, also an MPP before he was mayor. Uh, he uh, was also a city councillor before that. Uh, so, you know, he served at multiple levels of government. Uh, but this was also his project. This was a project he, he was elected uh, to really push through. Uh, he has been reelected repeatedly to get this project going. And so it is, is kind of his baby. And now he's wearing the mess for better or worse. Um, that said, uh, last week, uh, Transportation Minister Caroline Mulroney uh, announced a public inquiry to get to the bottom of why there have been uh, so many problems with this LRT. We haven't had a Bill Davis reference yet, John. Uh, John Michael, do you think we should do that right here? Uh, could I stop you if I wanted to? <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the Bill Davis reference. The uh, former Premier of Ontario and the current Mayor of Ottawa share the same birthday. So there you go, July 30th. I knew everybody was hanging on the edge of their seats to know that information, so I'm putting it in right here before we get any further into this conversation. <laughs> you know, I appreciate that one. I like that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, okay, back on the path now, and I presume part of the problem uh, for the nation's capital is that they are actually supposed to build a second phase of this LRT project, which is twice as expensive as the first phase. And it hardly makes sense to embark on a $4 billion project if you can't figure out how to keep phase one in good operating order, I presume. Exactly. So, you know, we're going to watch in the weeks ahead for the government to establish the inquiry, name a commissioner, uh, figure out which questions need answering, and they're going to set the terms of reference for the inquiry that'll, um, you know, really give us a sense of what the government, what, what questions the government is looking to answer. Uh, and, you know, ensure that this is all resolved before billions more dollars are spent on phase two. And of course, this isn't just an Ottawa story, because Ottawa isn't the only place that is building an LRT right now. We've got two light rail projects uh, underway in Toronto, uh, another in Mississauga, uh, and your hometown of Hamilton is finally getting closer to building an LRT after uh, a few years of drama. So, uh, you know, it's definitely worth learning whatever lessons we can. And I have to say, unlike in other cities where they're building LRTs right now, there is a real split in Hamilton as to whether or not it makes sense to do it. And I note there was a letter in the Hamilton Spectator, I think just yesterday or the other day, saying, uh, if you think it's a smart idea to build an LRT in Hamilton, just look at what's going on in Ottawa. They're having terrible problems. We shouldn't do it here. Anyway, it's, you're, you're quite right. This is not just an Ottawa story. It has tentacles well beyond that. All right, let's stay with transportation for another item here. The Liberal leader in Ontario, Stephen Del Duca, has announced that if he is successful in winning the next election, next June, next year, he'll offer Ontarians a tax credit to help them buy winter tires for their cars, trucks, minivans, whatever. What's the thinking here? Uh, I mean... It's confusing to me because I don't think voters in June are going to be thinking about snow tires, but maybe Stephen Del Duca knows something I don't. Um, you know, this was presumably an issue that Del Duca uh, knew something about, given that he was transportation minister when the Liberals were last in power. Uh, there are, are 
innumerable studies uh, that show that when people switch from uh, summer tires to winter tires, once the weather gets bad, uh, that saves lives. It makes uh, roads safer for everyone. Uh, you have fewer accidents, fewer injuries, and, and of course, fewer fatalities uh, when you switch to the deeper treads for wintertime. We should point out Quebec mandates this. You have to have winter tires on your vehicle during the wintertime in Quebec or you face a fine. Del Duca has, however, said he will not take that approach in the province of Ontario if he's successful next June. How come? You know, this is all about the the right mix of carrots and sticks. Uh, Del Duca said he would prefer to encourage people to get winter tires, so he is offering a tax credit for those that do. Uh, you never know how much uptake there will be on these things, uh, but if it's a decent amount, uh, Del Duca figures it'll cost the Treasury uh, $80 million, uh, which you know, in a provincial budget of $190 billion or so, it's a, a pretty modest sum of money uh, compared to, uh, you know, the, the health of drivers and their passengers and auto repair costs. You know, th- these things all have real costs on the economy, too. Now, Del Duca made the announcement last week on Zoom, and I did watch the announcement, and you you could see during the course of it that he was not just making an announcement specifically about tires, but he was road testing some campaign ideas as well. For example, when he was asked why not make it mandatory, as we just discussed, he talked about keeping life affordable in Ontario, thus the encouragement to buy winter tires, but not a law forcing people to do it. Affordability. JMM affordability. Get ready to hear a lot more from all the parties on that issue in the months to come. Well, and you've already heard uh, Premier Ford uh, talk about how he still wants to keep uh, his party's promise to lower gasoline taxes. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, between Ford and Del Duca, you're hearing uh, in particular about the affordability of driving right now. Um, And I suspect we are going to hear more about not just driving, but affordability uh, in other topics. Uh, You know, certainly a lot of people talking about inflation right now. We'll see whether that remains a uh, electoral issue with any kind of power uh, six months from now. Indeed. Let's do one more item here, and that is the Auditor General's Office released this year's audits of the province's environmental policies. Our listeners might remember that this used to be the job of the environmental commissioner, but the Ford government shut down the environmental commissioner's office. One of the first things they did when they came into power in 2018, they folded that work into the auditor's office, allegedly as a cost-saving measure. Well, okay, here we are, Auditor General Bonnie Lissick and the Assistant Auditor General and Environmental Commissioner Tyler Schultz have issued their annual report on the government's environmental policies. What kind of mark did the government get this time? <laughs> uh, not a huge, uh, not, not an A+, plus. Let's, let's put it that way. Uh, this year's report finds the government is uh, not taking the risks to endangered species terribly seriously with uh, permits that harm animals or their habitats being issued very frequently. Uh, it also finds that the province is very likely to miss its 2030 targets for waste diversion. This is like trying to keep things out of landfills with recycling or composting. Uh, it is very likely to miss its 2030 targets and it could see the province's existing landfill capacity fill up within 14 years. Uh, Lissick and Schultz also report that the government isn't taking its responsibilities under the Environmental Bill of Rights seriously. Uh, This is the law that requires the government to uh, post uh, potential policy changes for public consultation uh, and and, uh, be very transparent about its environmental policies. 
this is obviously not like great news for uh, any government. And I think every government in Ontario always braces when the Auditor General has a press conference. Uh, but the report was also pretty clear that several of these problems are, are much older than just the Ford government. This, uh, this goes back many, many years. And just to be clear, this is not the last we will hear from the Auditor General's office this year? Uh, right. The There's the traditional annual report from her office, which is a, a very large document, usually, you know, three to 400 pages, and it just details all sorts of things from ministries and programs and where there's uh, either, you know, waste or abuse or misspending. Uh, and the, that is still to come later this year. Uh, it reliably causes a headache for uh, whoever's in government. Uh, and it, uh, on the other hand, gives reporters and opposition politicians something to feast on for a day. <laughs> do we? That, that reminds me of an old story. Do we have time for a little story here? Yeah, yeah. I remember when I was a cub reporter. So that means even younger than you. I think I was <laughs> in my early 20s. And I had to cover the auditor's report being unveiled at Queen's Park. And I, <laughs> I went to cover this report. And I, you know, I put a couple of examples of, you know, malfeasance and badly run programs and all that. And then I tagged my report by saying, but on balance, the auditor thinks that the province's books are being well attended to and government is basically being run pretty well. And I got back to the station. And after I recorded that, I think the, um, the senior reporter came up to me and said, you know what, don't ever do that again. This is the one day a year where we all get to pile on the government, and you, you, you're not allowed to say that they're doing a pretty good job. It's all got to be bad news. So I guess I learned my lesson on that day. You don't give good news on the bad news day. There you go. There you go. Took me a little while to figure it out, but I think I got it straight now. Well, we always conclude this podcast with our favorite quotes of the week, and we'll have those for you immediately after we ask you to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We do love your feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. You can also shoot us an email at onpolitics at tvo.org. Here now, my quote of the week. And you know that the Alberta government just signed a child care agreement with the feds. That despite the fact that Premier Jason Kenney and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau aren't exactly what you'd call bosom buddies. So it again raised the question of why no agreement in Ontario yet? Premier Doug Ford addressed that a few days ago in Etobicoke. I'm just not going to make a deal for the sake of making a deal. We're seeing these deals signed, as, as you mentioned, that uh, they're more per capita with less strings attached. And my good friend Francois, he, he got a great deal, no, no strings attached or minimum strings attached. So we'll, we'll sit down. We've been negotiating for a couple months. I want a deal. But I also expect uh, the, the local mayors, be it Meritoria or other mayors, to stand united with us. I expect the, the federal MPs, the liberal uh, federal MPs, to stand with us. They represent half their, their caucus. So we'll, we'll strike a deal, but I'm not making a bad deal just for the sake of making a, a deal. That's Premier Ford pointing out his good friend Premier Francois Legault got a good deal for Quebec, and he'll be holding out for a good one for Ontario. Only Ontario and New Brunswick, well, they're the only jurisdictions in Canada at the moment without childcare agreements. And here's my quote of the week. And as I said, you know, I, I'm uh, a parent of a child who's now eligible to get vaccinated. So this might actually just be my quote of the year. Uh, here's Federal Minister of Procurement Philomena Tassi speaking on Friday. This morning, we heard the good news that Health Canada has authorized Pfizer-BioNTech's COVID-19 vaccine for children between the ages of 5 and 11. As we announced last month, Canada and Pfizer agreed to an accelerated delivery schedule for the COVID-19 vaccine for children once it received regulatory authorization. With the authorization announced today, 
I can now confirm that Canada will begin receiving doses Sunday with all the 2.9 million doses received by the end of next week. Not only is she the MP for Hamilton West Ancaster Dundas, but Canada's first pediatric Pfizer doses landed at the John C. Monroe International Airport in Hamilton on Sunday evening. I know you'd be cross with me if I didn't mention the Hamilton connection, Steve. That is absolutely correct. We 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 must. I believe it is a. I believe it is an edict of the Ontario cabinet. We must have either a Hamilton or a Bill Davis reference in everything we do. And thankfully, in this podcast, JMM, we had both. So thank you for continuing the tradition. Got to keep the, the, the team going. <laughs> Amen. That is this week's episode of the On Poly Podcast, produced by Katie O'Connor, edited by Matthew O'Mara, production support from Nikki Ashworth and Jonathan Hallowell. JMM, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve. <laughs> <laughs>